Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 40. And uh, tonight we're going to read through most of the rest of the uh, chapter based on what we already have studied, dealing with the measurements of the temple and that being the temple that is yet to be built, the temple that is called the millennial temple, the temple that uh, Jesus himself will, will build in, in, a, in a miraculous way. We have to, we have to believe that uh, because we know that uh, a lot is going to happen in a very short amount of time when Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives as uh, we're told in the book of Zechariah. And one of the things that we've talked about already over the last six weeks, because this, this is the sixth week in, in, uh, uh, of being in chapter 40, but one of the things that we've talked about, of course, is the very fact that uh, the, the, the very topography is going to change around the city of Jerusalem, uh, which, of course, has to do with the... Um, uh, the lay of the land and, 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 and a great mountain that arises. You know, if you go back over to verse, uh, uh, verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 40, and it talks about the hand of the Lord coming upon the prophet and bringing him to Jerusalem. Again, in the visions of God, it says, He brought me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain. And we know, because we've been there, that there isn't a very high mountain, but there is going to be a very high mountain. Now, when Jesus lands on the, on, the Mount of, on the Mount of Olives, we're told in the book of Zechariah, the valley before him that separates him in, at, 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 the, uh, uh, at the Mount of Olives and the eastern gate of the, of the city, the old city of Jerusalem, is, is going to open up. So we already know that the topography is going to change. So in the midst of all of that, then there's going to be a, a very high mountain. And from that high mountain, you will be able to see not only the city of Jerusalem, but a frame of the city. And uh, as, as we're told there again in verse 2. But on that frame, Ezekiel was taken to a temple. Not a temple that looked like Solomon's temple or Herod's temple or the temple of Zerubbabel that was built after the captivity and the people went back to the, uh, to the city of Jerusalem after being in in bondage in, in Babylon, or even, as I said, the temple of Herod, which was the temple that was there uh, in the time of Jesus. No, this is a totally different temple, totally different dimensions, as, we, we, as we've talked about before. There was a messenger of God, an angel, certainly, who had a rod ten and a half feet long, and with that, he measured all the, of the... Uh, uh, temple proper, which is, of course, the wall that surrounds the, uh, the temple area. It possibly could be on the temple mount area. Possibly it might be someplace else. But wherever it is, it's going to have to be big enough to hold this particular temple because this, as we said before, and, and I'm not going to go over all the dimensions, but we'll talk about it as we go, uh, it's, it's going to be a whole lot bigger. I'd given you all a chart uh, a few weeks ago that had uh, uh, the, the size dimensions of Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, and Jesus, or the millennial messianic temple. And that temple that Ezekiel is seeing is much, much, much larger. So with all those things in mind, uh, we, we found that uh, up to verse 16 where we've been so far, uh, Ezekiel has only been on the outer part of the, of the temple 
itself or the temple proper itself, the temple mount, if, if we can call it that. But uh, now from verses 17 on the way down to the end of the chapter, we're just going to see the measurements and where he's taken. And we're going to comment along the way a little bit about it because it, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, really have a whole lot of more than that other than the fact that some of these things that we're going to see represent some, some uh, symbolism to us. Now, let me, let me make sure that you understand that we've already talked about the fact that this temple is not a symbolic temple, that it's not just being talked about as a, as a as symbolism or an allegory. It's going to be a real temple because why measure it? Why have the dimensions that we have on it? So we know it's going to be a real temple. But it has some, it has some, uh, some qualities to it that for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we can learn from it. In other words, it represents things that we can apply to our lives today. So uh, always the scripture speaks in that, in that way. But understand that these chapters, chapters 40 to the end, uh, 48, from chapter 40 to 48, everything has to do with the kingdom age, in other words, the time when Jesus is going to come and rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And it pertains primarily to Israel, not to the church. It pertains to Israel, not to the church. We have to understand that the seven-year period of tribulation, we call it the tribulation period, the seven years that have yet to begin, even though we're getting close to that time, but those seven years is primarily to bring Israel through their last seven years of correction, judgment, discipline from the Lord, seven years that they were cut off from. Uh, we learned that from the book of Daniel, that uh, they have already gone 483 years. Those are all done, but seven years now are, are, are left. And of course, we know that Israel kind of disappeared. For 2,000 years. But now they're back in the land. And God is preparing them now for those last seven years that he wants to deal with them because of his word. It has to be, it has to be you know, kept. His word is always kept. And he's going to finish that seven-year period. It's at the end of that time that they're going to recognize the Messiah when he comes. And, of course, then they will be back in the land. They'll be back in the city of Jerusalem a totally different city because of, of all the changes that are going to be made when Jesus comes. So th these are the things that we have to kind of be prepared for. But the very fact that there is an Israel should wake us up to the fact that the Bible is true. And, uh, and there, it doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what all these quote-unquote experts on what's going on in the world today. Uh, there's a lot of other things that I hope we can talk about in the last... Uh, a few chapters that we're going to deal with as we start to close the book of Ezekiel that are pertaining to our, our day and time. But we'll talk about those when we get there. Verse 17, let's just continue on. We're going to read and then we're going to comment along the way uh, down through the end of this chapter. And then brought he me into the outer outward court. That is, the messenger has brought Ezekiel into the outward court and lo, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court round about. Thirty chambers were upon the pavement, 
and the pavement by the side of the gates over against the length of the gates was the lower pavement. So up against the walls that surrounded the temple area, there were 30 uh, chambers or rooms. And these rooms, of course, were for, for the priests and, and for other, uh, other events and, and reasons. And then the pavement, of course, would be that which would be a, there was a lower pavement, we'll talk about that in a moment, a lower pavement and then an upper pavement. But here it says the pavement by the side of the gates over against the length of the gates was the lower pavement. And then he measured the breadth from the forefront of the lower gate unto the forefront of the inner court without, which means outside, 100 cubits eastward and northward. So uh, we're talking about 100 long cubits, uh, which would uh, represent um, uh, six, uh, you know, the, the 10 and a half foot uh, measuring rod, of course, was, was six cubits long. So uh, you, you figure the, the, the measurements are, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good distance, 100, 100 cubits. And the gate of the outward court that looked toward the north. He measured the length thereof and the breadth thereof. And the little chambers thereof were three on this side and three on that side, and the posts thereof and the arches thereof were after the measure of the first gate. Some of you might remember the video that we saw last time where uh, it was kind of a, an artist's conception of what's, what's going on. But all, all of those, those chambers that surrounded the, the, the inner court uh, is what it, uh, it's talking about. And then there were outer chambers as well. Uh, so it's, it's just measuring all of these things again, just letting us know what the lengths are and so on. Uh, verse 21, the little chambers thereof were three on this side, three on that side, the posts thereof and the arches thereof were after the measure of the first gate. I, I'm just reading what, <laughs> what it says. The length thereof was 50 cubits, the breadth five and 20 cubits. And their windows and their arches and their palm trees, and that would be things that are carved into the walls or into the, the pillars, were after the measure of the gate that looketh toward the east, and they went up unto it by seven steps, and the arches thereof were before them. The seven steps, just in, in the numbers and number system of, of the Bible, seven is a number that represents perfection. So there's a, a, an important understanding of the seven steps here. Later on, we're going to come up to a, a, a passage that talks about another area that has eight steps, and I'll, I'll mention what that eight means for that. But the seven being the seven is the number of perfection, so it's, it's approaching God. The gates, the steps, approaching God. And the arches thereof were before them. And the gate of the inner court was over against the gate toward the north and toward the east, and he measured from gate to gate a hundred cubits. After that he brought me toward the south, and behold, a gate toward the south. And he measured the posts thereof and the arches thereof according to these measures. And what we're going to find out is the gates and the, and, and the, uh, the, the pathways and the archways and all. Everything measures the same on the north, on the east, and on the south. And not, it's not the same on the west. And there were windows in it and in the arches thereof round about like those windows. Uh, the length was 50 cubits and the breadth 50, uh, I'm sorry, breadth 5 and 20 cubits, which is 25 cubits. And there were seven steps to go up to it and the arches thereof were before them. And it had palm trees, one on this side and another on that side, upon the posts thereof. Okay. In this vision now, 
that the Lord God of Israel gave to the prophet Ezekiel concerning the Messianic temple, uh, we have been given primarily a tour that began outside the wall and onto the outer court where we will begin and proceed from here to the inner court. So we're moving toward the inner court, which will be described in the last half of this chapter. But Ezekiel watched the messenger of God measure the outside wall, porch, windows, chambers, and spaces with a 10 and a half foot measuring rod, as I said, six long cubits. He, he also measured the width of the outer court as well. From the east gate to the outer uh, court, to the gate of the inner court was 175 feet or the 100 long cubits. But the very measuring of the temple courts and the temple itself with exacting measurements and dimensions make it very clear that this is not, as I said before, an allegorical or symbolic passage. There will really be a temple built by Messiah himself when he comes to rule and reign in Jerusalem after that great and terrible day of the Lord, the seven years. But until that day comes, there's a need uh, uh, to the significance and importance of these measurements and details. The outer courtyard should remind us that we are to seek to be reconciled with God. The outer courtyard should remind us that we are to seek to be reconciled with God. Remember, by the way, that all worshipers, when we're talking about the temple, the, the earlier temples as well, but th that all worshipers were restricted to the outer courtyard and never allowed to enter the inner courtyard where the temple itself sat. And that was done to symbolize the fact that the people are separated and alienated from God. So that's, that's really the whole picture here. There's an outer court and the in inner court. The inner court, of course, could only be uh, 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 serviced by the priests. And the more you move toward the Holy of Holies and then the holiest of holies, or the holiest place, as it were, then it could only be the high priest. So as you're moving toward the inner court, then realize that you could only go so far. But isn't that the way it is? I mean, because of, because of the very fact that man is fallen, man is, is, is sinful, is born in sin. And now, you know, we, we can't in, our, in and of ourselves approach God. So, but he made a way. He sent his only begotten son. He made that promise in Genesis 5, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, verse 15, where he, he gave the promise of the Messiah, the seed of the woman. So that is what, you know, they've been waiting for, is the coming of, of Messiah. But they could believe in Messiah. That, that's, that's, a, that's one of those things that, you know, we, we could have believed in Messiah way before, but we, we didn't. <laughs> and they didn't. Think about that for a moment. But the whole thing is to remind us of the great gulf between God and man. God is holy, man is not. God is pure, man is not. God is holy, but man is fallen. So the temple has a significance to all, to the Jew and to the Gentile. The gates in the, in the temple remind us that we must repeatedly enter God's presence to worship the Lord, to pray unto the Lord, and to study God's word faithfully that we might be more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And as mentioned previously, the meaning of the high and wide walls surrounding the temple is to be a reminder to us of the great protection and security provided by God through his presence upon all of those who approach fully trusting and worshiping him. So the temple then becomes a type of Christ. 
The temple becomes a type of Christ, the only place where a person can worship the Lord in complete safety and security. The gates of Messiah's temple also serve as a reminder that the Lord God had provided that way into his presence, the only way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way. What does he say in, in John? I am the door. I am the gate of the sheep. But he's also the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus fulfills really all of what the temple represents. That God has provided that way into his presence, a way that is acceptable unto God. What is acceptable unto God but the work that his only begotten son did? That's what's acceptable. That's why John 3.16 is, is, is of utmost importance for us to understand when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved the world so much that he didn't leave it without a way. A way to come. A way to be blessed. A way to be changed. A way to come into the presence of God. Because that's what God wanted from the very beginning. The fellowship and the companionship of the people that he created in his image. But he wanted us to come Because we wanted to come. Because we wanted to. It, it was, it's our will to come. So Jesus himself is the way. He's the door. He's the gate. And as we look at the text we just read, let's, let's just first consider verses 17 through 19. I just want you to look at them in your, in your Bibles. I'm not going to go specifically into great detail on these things. But passing through the passageway of the gate, the messenger in Ezekiel walked into the outer courtyard of the temple complex. The prophet saw 30 rooms built against the walls. The rooms opened onto a strip of stone pavement that extended into the courtyard uh, uh, 87.5 feet, when you get that measurement done right. This was called the lower pavement, as I mentioned before. He doesn't state the purpose of the rooms, but they will more than likely be used for storage or public meetings. And once again, remember that the people would be restricted to the outer courtyard, only the priests were allowed in the inner courtyard. Now, let's, let's look at this from, from a, a more personal standpoint. Why, why do the people have to stay out in the outer courtyard? Some, some people might think, well, you know, we can't all be that bad. We can't all be so bad that, that we're, we're not allowed to come near to God. See, the world doesn't have a, a, the proper understanding of, 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 of God. You know, they, they want God in their own image, which means accepting, allowing everything to happen, you know, uh, the way they want it to happen. But that's not, that's, that's God in the image of man. The Bible teaches us of, of man to be in the image of God because we were created by God. And isn't it interesting how upset people are with God who they don't even know, but they're upset at him because they say, well, if that's the God, you know, the Bible, then, you know, why should we even worship him? Because they have these, these ideas, you know, that all, he is, all he's about is judgment and, and, 
and all kinds of other things which they, they know nothing about. So man, when they're trying to think about God, you know, they say, well, man, we're not so bad. You know, I mean, I'm a good person, right? Did you ever say that? I'm a good person. Y'all look at me like, yeah, I mean, have you ever said that? Yeah. Didn't you say that before? I'm, 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 I'm a basically good person, right? What does the Bible say? There is none that is good, not one. But we think we're good because we say, well, I haven't murdered anybody yet. I'm a good person. I haven't lied that much. Little white lies here and there, that can't be so bad. Right? Yet lying is one of the major sins in the scriptures. Scripture even tells us that liars aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say bad liars as opposed to good liars. Right? Y'all know where, uh, where I'm coming from? You, you guys are tired, aren't you? You just look at me like, uh, where is he going with all of this? I haven't stolen anything from anybody of any great value. Hey, listen, you, t you, t you take some, some uh, paper clips from your, from your office. That's not, you know, is that okay? Why am I bringing this up? Because you see, we need to understand why the temple was made the way it was. Why all the temples were done the way God wanted them to be done, according to his pattern, to remind us of all these things. And one thing that Jesus said, he quoted from Isaiah 29, verse 13. But Jesus said this in Matthew 15, verse 8, quoting from Isaiah. He said, this people, Speaking of his own people, by the way, he said, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. They draw near to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's speaking of his own people. The people that he would, later on in, in, in chapter 23, called hypocrites. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. On the outside, you look so pious, but on the inside, you're just dead. You're full of dead men's bones. The heart is far from me. The psalmist King David wrote in Psalm 58, verse 3, he said that wicked are estranged from the womb. From the womb. Born in sin, you see. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. <laughs> wow. I've, often I've oftentimes told you that, that uh, very thing. The one, one of the things that kids all grow up saying right away, almost right away after they say mama and dada, you know what they say? Mine, mine. They say everything is theirs. Why? They're lying because it doesn't belong to them. But they want to possess it. That's the heart of the prideful person. The wicked are estranged from the womb. 
from birth and even before. We are born in sin. Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. How often do we read that and not real under, really understand that it applies to anybody? That if we are regarding iniquity in our hearts, that the Lord will not hear our cries, our prayers. In fact, the Lord would say through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. A little later on in Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7. God uses a, a, through the prophet, of course. The prophet speaks for the people here. But, but he uses a, a very graphic term. He says, but we are all as an unclean thing. He's speaking on behalf of the people and himself. Isaiah, the prophet. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness says, and notice what we consider to be our righteousness says, plural, like if we have a lot of our own righteousnesses to boast in, right? He says, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And that phrase in the, in the Hebrew, filthy rags, is describing menstrual cloths. Which, of course, when, when, when we read in the, in the law, women that are in their menstrual period are what? Unclean. Unclean. And he says, we are all as an unclean thing. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Crying out to God for the people and standing in the gap for the people, saying, We are all as an unclean thing. So, so the the whole idea here is to show you the picture then of the outward, the outer court to be where the people could go because you couldn't go any further in and of yourself, in and of your own lives, in and of your own bodies because you're unclean. And then we find that only Jesus can reconcile us with God the Father. It is only his Messiah. What happens once you get into the inner court? Well, I say you, but I say what, what happens when you finally begin to understand who goes into the inner court? Who goes in? The priests, right? They, they work within the inner court. Doing what? Performing the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices, the animals that are brought by the people to say this is to atone for our sins. What do the, what do the animals represent? The work of God the Father's Son, Jesus, 
in the shedding of blood. You see, the picture was given for them. See the picture. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the Messiah. He's going to bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent is going to bruise his heel on the cross, but he's coming. It's all pictures to show you what's going to happen. If they had faith in those things that God had given them, God would bless them. They would be faithful. They would be the righteous. They would be the remnant. And there was a remnant of people that believed. Only Jesus can reconcile us with God the Father. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, Wherefore all, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, or, which means to run to help and aid them that are tempted. Only the Messiah, only Jesus. And after the messenger measured the lower pavement, he took Ezekiel to the north gate, which is verses 20 through 23, which was identical to the east gate in both design and measurements, identical. As previously stated, the gates are a reminder to us uh, of repeatedly coming into God's presence to grow spiritually, to walk victoriously through life, conquering the hardships and the misfortunes that, that will confront us. And as we know in life, those hardships, those things confront us each and every day. That happens the more we are conformed to the image of Christ. In Ephesians 4, verses 14 and 15, it says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him, growing up into Christ in all things which is the head, even Christ. Growing up in Christ, becoming more of like him and more in his image, which is what that means, to grow up into him in all things. And then the Lord's messenger led the prophet to the south side of the outer court where he saw another gate, verses 24 through 27. Again, the south gate and its passageway were identical to the others. And by the way, one last note here, there is no gateway facing west. No gateway facing west. I'll talk about that later. Let's now consider verses 27 through 38. We're just going, we're just going to read this and, you know, when, when it happens, we'll, we'll know. <laughs> you know. This is all just measurements. There was a gate in the inner court toward the south. So now they're moving toward the inner court. And he measured from gate to gate toward the south 100 cubits. And he brought me to the inner court by the south gate. And he measured the south gate according to these measures. And the little chambers thereof and the posts thereof and the arches thereof. The posts being the columns. The arches thereof, according to these measures, and there were windows in it, and the arches thereof round about. It was 50 cubits long and 5 and 20 cubits broad. And the arches round about were 5 and 20 cubits long and 5 cubits broad. And the arches thereof were toward the utter court, that being, being the outer court, but the utter court. And palm trees were, up, uh, were upon the posts thereof, and the going up to it had eight steps. Interesting. The other steps were how many? Seven. Here there is eight. 
I mentioned the seven is a number of completion. And of course, it is a number that represents the completion that comes through the work of God. You come to God by faith. Eight is the number in scripture. It is the number of, of new beginnings, new beginnings. And, uh, and that in a, in a lot of different uh, examples that we can see in, 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 uh, in life. Music, for example, the, the scale, a uh, music scale is eight, eight from, from one to eight. One and eight are the same. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, there's seven notes, and then the eighth is the, uh, is, is the repeated note, an octave higher or lower, depending on which way you go. It, it's it's, it's a, a new beginning. So eight being a new beginning, and the only way we can have a new beginning is through Jesus Christ. So what we're getting in as you go into the inner court are eight steps. Speaking of that uh, new beginning that happens after the sacrifice of the lamb or of the animal. He brought me into the inner court toward the east and he measured the gate according to these measures and the little chambers thereof and the posts thereof and the arches thereof were according to these measures and there were windows uh, therein and in the arches uh, thereof round about it was 50 cubits long and five and 20 cubits broad and the arches thereof were toward the outer court and palm trees were upon the posts thereof on this side and on that side and the going up to it had eight steps. And he brought me to the north gate <clears throat> and measured it according to these measures. The little chambers thereof, the posts thereof and the arches thereof and the windows to it round about. Notice very similar to each one. Uh, the length was 50 cubits, the breadth 50, uh, I'm sorry, 5 and 20 cubits. And the posts thereof were toward the utter court, again, toward the outer court. And palm trees were upon the posts thereof on this side and on that side, which means inside and outside. And the going up to it had eight steps. And the chambers and the entries thereof were by the posts of the gates where they washed the burnt offering. So it's a reminder then that you first have to come to God, the seven steps. You, you first approach the Lord by coming into that outer courtyard. And in the outer courtyard, you begin to re realize, I'm separated from God because of my sin. But then you approach those steps where the priest will take over because then they are the only ones that can go into the inner court. But you take those steps to bring what? To bring the sacrifice. And in bringing the sacrifice, what are you doing? You're bringing the sacrifice for the sake of having a new beginning, a new start. That's the importance of Yom, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Every year, the same thing. Every year, prayers for forgiveness from God. To begin afresh, to begin anew, a new beginning. But you see, when we came to Jesus Christ, we had a new beginning. We didn't have to come back every year, do we? We only had to come one time. In fact, when you read the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews encourages you. Listen, he died once for all. And only one time. Doesn't die again and again and again. And this is what we need to also understand and consider 
that when you look at things very biblically and, and, and scripturally, <clears throat> that to say as, as in some uh, religions, like in, in, the, in the Catholic faith, that, you, you know, that they have to do the sacrifice of the mass every, t every time, every week. It's, it's over and over. It's like crucifying Jesus once and, and again and again and again. The Bible says no, once and for all. Once and for all was the sacrifice made. Now, are we cheapening the work of Christ? Not at all. In fact, we are giving thanks to God for that once for all offering. Because this is where the Jews are today. They, this is the reason why they can't wait to have a temple because they haven't had any sacrifices for 2,000 years since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And sacrifice is so important for them. So, what Jesus did was fulfill the work of the temple. This is why he's called the great high priest in the book of Hebrews. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but what we talked about in John this past weekend, we're going to see come up again here. I'll, I'll let you know when we get there. But the messenger has now led the prophet Ezekiel into the inner courtyard through the south gate. The south, east, and north gates were identical uh, to the gates of the outer court with only two exceptions. Their porticos or their, their porches faced toward the outer courtyard and each gate passageway had eight steps leading up to it instead of seven. And now the gates of the inner court are a reminder that Jesus Christ gives us open access into God's presence. Remember that only the priests had access into the inner courtyard to the temple. I'm just kind of reinforcing these things as we're going along. But the main reason for this is to teach us of God's holiness and that his advocate, and here we go, his advocate, his priest, his mediator, and his intercessor, remember what we talked about on, sun, on, on Sunday, He's our advocate, he's our attorney, but he is also our great high priest, he is our mediator, and he is our intercessor. He alone represents us before the Father. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, represents us. He is the only one that can represent us before the Father. Why? Because he is the perfect priest needed to reconcile men to God. There's no other. Even in the book of Hebrews, and again, you know, when you get time to read the book of Hebrews, understand that it tells us there that there are those certain priesthoods that are, that are uh, fulfilled by, by flesh, by men. You know, they're, they're doing the job, but they're, they're flesh. But the priesthood of Christ is totally different. In fact, he is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when you read about Melchizedek in the, in the life of the, of, the, of the patriarch Abraham, you realize this was not a very, uh, I mean, this was a mysterious person. He was a mysterious priest. Now we know who it is. It was Jesus. 
And there's, we're not going to go into that tonight, but, but it's something to, to read about and think about. The perfect priest was needed to reconcile men to God. Man could do it, you know, if they did it faithfully and, 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 and wholeheartedly, you know, they would do it representing the people, but just as it tells us in the book of Hebrews, man, they, you know, they could only go so far because they had to do it time and time and time again, over and over and over. Sacrifices once again and once again and once again. The perfect priest would only have to do it one time. Consider what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, notice, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now the priest, in, in particular the high priest, acted as a mediator who alone could go into what? Into the Holy of Holies. Taking the blood that was to be poured out on the, onto the altar that also contained there the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest, only once, once a year. And only that one person could go in there. And if he wasn't pure, you know, they tied a, like a, a rope around his foot. And they had bells on the bottom of, the, of his robe. So they go in there and you could hear him. He's in there, jingle, 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 jingle. You know, ringing along as he's going and doing the service for the people. But if they heard a plop and no more ringing, at least he had the rope on his foot. They just pulled him out. You know, I guess he was sinful. He must, he must have forgotten a sin or something when he was confessing. You know. Well, we don't have any, we don't have any knowledge that, that that ever happened. But the fact of the matter is, wouldn't you be, wouldn't you be fearful of going in there? So I wouldn't want to. That's why I'm, th I'm thankful for Jesus who, who went in for us. But it says, we have one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Notice, by the blood of Jesus. Wow. Think about Jesus and the fact that he's the one that offered his own, his own blood. He offered his own body on the cross. But he's also the great high priest who offers it before the throne of God for us. I mean, you know, he's the altar. He's the sacrifice. He's the blood. And he's the priest. He's everything. Got it? Yeah. Isn't that great to know? He's everything. By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an, a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And of course, that describes the various stations before the priest enters in with a sacrifice. But now, standing on the porch of the north gate, the messenger describes the rooms used for preparing the sacrifices. Verses 39 through 43. Notice. And in the porch of the gate were two tables on this side and two tables on that side to slay thereon the burnt offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. And at the side without or outside, as one goeth up to the entry of the north gate, were two tables. And on the other side, which were at the porch of the gate, were two tables. So two tables on either side. Four tables were on this side, four tables on that side, by the side of the gate. Eight tables, whereupon they slew their sacrifices. And the four tables were of hewn stone for the burnt offering, 
of a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and one cubit high. Whereupon also they laid the instruments wherewith they slew the burnt offering and the sacrifice. And within were hooks, notice, a hand broad, fastened round about, and upon the tables was the flesh of the offering. So the rooms of the chambers mentioned back in verse 38 are apparently to be built right beside the steps that will lead up to the three gates of the inner court. And so the people in the outer court would be able to bring their animals right up to the rooms where the priests will prepare them for sacrifice. I, I'm saying this kind of in the future tense because, of course, Ezekiel was looking at it as if it was present because he's seen it. But again, remember, he's seen it as a vision. He's explaining it to us as if it's already been done. We will see that it's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. So I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm expressing it as if it is future. So you'll know. <clears throat> so when uh, we then are told of eight tables for the slaughtering of the sacrifices and four additional tables to hold the butchering tools. Now, if there are any questions right now in your minds, what would, the, what would those questions be? Why is there a need for sacrifices? I'm not going to tell you. Well, not yet. At the end of the study, I will. <laughs> we then are told of those eight tables again for the slaughtering. And there, there, there'll also be these three-inch hooks fastened to the walls of the room and, per, and perhaps to the porch. Uh, they would be used for hanging and skinning the slaughtered animals because that had to be done. Those rooms would be a reminder that the true Lamb of God is Jesus himself. That's what those rooms are to indicate. The sacrifice of Jesus is the only sacrifice that God accepts. Only his sacrifice and his alone can cleanse us from sin and redeem us eternally. So we should know that. 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the only, only way that we can be cleansed is to the blood of Jesus Christ. And then the angelic messenger would now show Ezekiel two one-room buildings in the inner court. So let's read verses 44 through 47. And without the inner gate were the chambers of the singers in the inner court, which was at the side of the north gate. And their prospect was toward the south, one at the side of the east gate having the prospect toward the north. And he said unto me, this, this chamber whose prospect is toward the south is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the house. And the chamber whose prospect is toward the north is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok among the sons of Levi, which come near to the Lord to minister unto him. So he measured the court, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, four square, and the altar that was before the house. Now, one of the buildings was by the north gate and faced south. This was for the priests who were in charge of maintaining the temple. The other building was by the south gate of the inner court and faced north. 
It was for the priests who were in charge of the altar and the sacrifices. Those priests were, uh, or these priests were the descendants of Zadok, who had remained faithful to David during Absalom's revolt. And down through the centuries, his descendants, Zadok's descendants, had remained loyal to the Lord in the midst of widespread corruption and idolatry. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So I encourage you to write that down and read it later. 2 Samuel 15, verses 24 through 29. And then it goes on in verse 48 of Ezekiel 40. And he brought me to the porch of the house and measured each post of the porch, five cubits on this side, five cubits on that side. And the breadth of the gate was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits and the breadth 11 cubits. And he brought me by the steps whereby they went up to it. And there were pillars by the posts, one on this side and another on that side. So this is the porch of the temple and seems to be similar to Solomon's temple with the two pillars on each side. Uh, 1 Kings 7 verse 21, by the way. In that passage there in 1 Kings 7, one of the pillars was named uh, Yaquin, which means he shall be established. And the other was named Boaz, which means in him is strength. So as you came to the temple and you looked, you were reminded that God had established this nation. And it is only by his strength that it would continue on. Well, I think that each of us, if we're honest, would have to admit that that is exactly the way that we need to stand. We have been established by Jesus Christ, and we continue on because of Jesus Christ. We continue on because of his strength, not ours. We're established not because of our wisdom or our intellect. We are established because of God's wisdom, God's understanding because of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with with just a few thoughts concerning the sacrifices that are mentioned in this last passage of chapter 40 because that is one of the major questions asked about this this passage here in in chapter 40. We might very well think that these verses may seem completely out of place. Why sacrifices? Jesus is ruling on the throne of David. Why, Why sacrifices now? The New Testament is very clear that the sacrifices of Jesus as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, in fact, truly took away our sins. It truly did. Again, as Hebrews says, once and for all. Something that animal sacrifices could never do. Again, explained in the book of Hebrews. But it isn't just Ezekiel who speaks of these sacrifices in the kingdom age. Isaiah records the Lord's words in Isaiah 56, verse 7. Listen. He said, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. Now remember, he's speaking of the millennial kingdom and the millennial temple. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now isn't that something that Jesus said? when he uh, overturned the tables of the money changers? 
It says, my house will be a house of prayer, quoting from this passage. So Jesus obviously knew that there would be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. So first of all, this may refer then to a memorial to the Lord. In other words, the sacrifices would be as a memorial unto the Lord, looking back at his finished work on the cross of Calvary. Now, we do see memorials in the Hebrew Scriptures to remind people of what God has done. For example, Joshua. Joshua led the children of Israel into the Promised Land, crossing the Jordan River on dry land, setting up a memorial of stones to show their children what the Lord had done for them. Joshua chapter 4. It is important to remember that in the Old Testament, they looked ahead in faith. They looked ahead in faith to the coming of Messiah by offering various sacrifices until the perfect sacrifice would come. But it goes deeper than this. For the scriptures speak of these as sacrifices for atonement. What we have to keep in mind is that there will be a large number of people that will make it through the seven-year tribulation period and will enter into the kingdom age. Let's not forget that. I mean, who's going to be on the earth for a thousand years while Jesus is reigning on the throne in, in Jerusalem? There have to be people on the earth for a thousand years. They will have physical bodies. They will have children during this time. They will say that some, some children will be in their hundreds of years old and they're still babies, you know, kind of, sort of. Think about that. But remember also that Satan will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years which are the exact thousand years of Christ on the earth, the fact will be that during this time, people will still rebel because they're in flesh, still. And they'll, you know, even though the Lord is going to deal with sin immediately because he's on the throne, he's on the earth, on the throne, and he will deal with, with sin Let's, let's remember there, there's a difference between the, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, the millennial kingdom, and what is called the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, where righteousness will dwell. Different. It's different. Okay, we'll talk about that at another time. But the fact is this, that while Jesus paid in full the penalty for our sins, there will be those who choose to rebel. There will be those who choose to follow Satan when he is loosed for a season. You may ask, why would he do that? Why would the Lord do that? Because it comes back to the very question is, are you serving the Lord because you're forced to or because you love him? Are we serving the Lord here today because, you know, we had a gun put to our head? Or did we make the choice to die to ourselves and to come and love Jesus with all of our heart because he loved us first and because he gave of himself first for us. It was the same way in the garden. 
He didn't make Adam and Eve robots. He gave them that opportunity to make that choice. That free agency was given to them. Because God is a God of love. And people miss out on that because they say, well, the Old Testament is about, about judgment and, and the New Testament is about grace. No, God is a God of grace from, from the very beginning because he's a God of love and of mercy. He is a God who is true. He is a God who is just. He is a God who is holy. And these are things we never should forget. So something to consider. Just consider this with me. But animal sacrifices during the millennium will serve primarily to remove ceremonial uncleanness and prevent defilement from polluting the temple envisioned by Ezekiel. And this will be necessary because the glorious presence of the Lord God of Israel will once again be dwelling on the earth in the midst of a sinful and unclean people. Now, who will be sinless and clean? Who comes with Jesus when he comes to, to the earth to rule and reign? The saints, right? The ten thousands of his saints that were taken up in the rapture and are with him for seven years while all hell breaks loose on the earth. And then we come back with him and we rule and reign on the earth with him. But the rest of the earth, there are going to be people on the earth and every nation, nations will have to come before the Lord. Nations are made up of people. And these people need to give their lives to, to the Lord. And they can come. Uh, time and time again, we see the opening of, 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 of the, the gates to people to come to Jerusalem as nations and as individuals to come to Christ. So God's presence and Christ's presence on the earth during that time must be protected during this millennium through sacrifice. And only temporarily for a thousand years. And during the eternal state following the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, all inhabitants of the new Jerusalem will be glorified and will therefore not be a source of contagious impurities to defile God's holiness. And again, it is something for us to consider. Just something to consider for the reasons why there are sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. They do, not have to, they, they, they do not have to be given for the sake of anybody's salvation. It is, they, they're, they're going to be given as memorials. They are going to be given as the cleansing for the people to understand what Christ's ultimate sacrifice did for them. Because that sacrifice will continue on through the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then they can see him with his nails guard hands on the throne. And they can come with willing hearts to praise him. I leave you with Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Because of what Jesus did then, it affects our life now for eternity. And he never has to do this again because he did it once for all. Isaiah 53, four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Healed in what way? We're healed from that sin, from that iniquity, from those transgressions. Healed. Have you ever considered sin as a disease? How diseased are so many people today? Diseased with this sin. Yet once you look at the cross and you look at what Jesus did for you and for me, what can we say? But he healed us. We're no longer diseased from that sin. It's been taken away. And then it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Here's the truth. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the Lord knows why there will be sacrifices in the millennium. Certainly knows a lot better than we do. But they will be there because the scripture says they will be. It will be a reminder to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles that what Jesus did is never to be taken lightly. It's always to be at the forefront of what we are and what we do as believers in Jesus Christ. Thank God for what Jesus did. Amen.